Hi, this is Tamika Kasten Miller, and you are listening to Think, Flow, Grow. At the end of this and every episode, you will find a meditation. So stay tuned. Hello, this is Tamika Kasta Miller with Ashe Yoga here in Houston, Texas. And today I am talking about decolonizing your mindset. For those of you who know me, you know that I talk about colonization often. And I believe that it is because it is something that pervades our everyday life. And most people are simply just not aware of it, um, whether it is because they have uh, committed to just being a victim of uh, the system that created most of the um, the industrialized and um, quote first world countries, um, or because they have directly profited from it. But for for good or for ill, we're oftentimes not aware of this in our daily life and how we are actually embracing this mindset in, in, in a way that's detrimental to people. So this reminds me of a conversation I recently had. There was a post from an account that was a yoga account. And this um, yoga account, which is usually helpful with um, information on anatomy, thoughts from the community, et cetera, et cetera. This particular account this day chose to post a meme that bemoaned teachers, yoga teachers who have a 200-hour certification, essentially um, alluding to them not being knowledgeable and not being able to actually um, help people with a physical situation. Now, I immediately took issue with this meme because as memes do, they simplify things. As they do, they generalize things. And when we're talking about people, um, simplification and generalization is nine times out of 10 problematic. We have essentially said that someone who holds a particular certification that is given to them by an entity that's not regulated here in the West, that is a registry program, gets to decide who is or isn't inherently knowledgeable about things. Um, I just just think it's hilarious. And I think it's so American. It's so North American that I had to actually speak about it and in a larger context, because um, for me, everything that you need to know about um, yoga in the West and colonial hangover was exemplified in that post and in the comments that uh, that happened in the post as well. So let me just take a moment to step back to take this out of a yoga context and to give some context to myself and even the name of my company, Ashe Yoga. Ashe Yoga is, is, um, comes out of the embracing of the word Ashe, which is a West African concept um, that uh, stems out of the Ifa religion or out uh, and out of Yoruba tradition, the Yoruba tribe. The Yoruba tribe is found in various current day countries uh, and along uh, West Africa, including um, Benin, Ghana, uh, Nigeria, just to name a few. And um, and this this meaning is is very similar to um, Christ- the Christian concept of the Holy Spirit or the Jewish concept of Shahina which is this, this spirit or this, this essence that inhabits you. And through this um, energy or this, this thing that inhabits you, you have then the power to transform. For me, by becoming fully embodied in my practice, I have found 
my ability to step into transformation, to step into transcendence by trusting myself fully, by then um, sloughing off what culture would tell me I can and I can't do, and turning inward to know what I can and can't do, to know what I am capable of, which is of everything. And, um, and then to actually start stepping into that vision, uh, the belief had to be created around that before I was even able to see that for myself. And as a full figure woman within the yoga community, this uh, became very helpful because the reality is that I'm a black full figure queer woman within westernized yoga community, which oftentimes looks like white, skinny, cisgender, straight, and um, it, it oftentimes just doesn't look like me. Um, now, if you come into uh, my classes, you will see full-figured everything from the thinnest, whitest person to the heaviest, darkest person in my classes um, that, um, that maybe you've seen ever. Uh, they're all there because everyone has a place. Because when we start sloughing off what culture says is right, beautiful, okay, and we start seeing everyone as right, beautiful, and okay, then everyone steps into that reality. So this concept of Ashe for me has been super transformative. And um, you have seen this reflected in cultures that did not um, successfully uh, colonize out this identity and this religious practice. Um, so you'll see this in dances and concepts in Brazil, Cuba, um, somewhat in the Dominican Republic, certainly in Puerto Rico, um, in, uh, uh, in Haiti, of course, and even in current day Louisiana. So you will see these practices and essentially, any type of, of uh, for example, if you think about dances, you've probably seen before. If you think about salsa, for example, um, salsa is a dance that's, you know, your knees are bent, you're dancing low to the ground, um, you are um, dancing and, and with your whole body, moving your entire body, having an entire uh, experience with your essential and sensory experience with your body as you dance. And this is definitely connect. This is Afrocentric dancing, um, which is low to the ground, um, sen a full sensory and essential experience. Um, and this, this, um, being connected to the ground is really important when we think about Ashe, because if we think about every person who has traversed this world, uh, we've all connected to the ground. We've all stepped on the ground. If, if a person hasn't stepped on the ground because maybe they didn't, they didn't um, make it to that age to walking, um, they were buried into the ground. So everyone, um, and even the, the concept of uh, it is from dust that we have come and to dust we will return, you know, it is all coming back and forth through the ground. And so Afrocentricity is um, connecting deeply to the ground and connecting to the power of our ancestors, which is transmitted through the ground. And we, we see evidence of how disconnected we are from this concept through our disconnection with nature. You know, the problem with touching grass without shoes, the problem with touching dirt, the issue with um, actually seeing movement in the grass and being afraid of it or movement in dirt and being afraid of it. This is deep colonial hangover, not feeling connected to nature. And because of this disconnect with nature, how are we possibly supposed to um, see ourselves as, as participants with nature, um, stewards over our tiny little part of the world that we get to inhabit. Of course, we wouldn't see that because once we're disconnected from nature, we don't really care what happens to it. Um, but, you know, the, the big joke, though, I think will be on us when, you know, the, the earth will just spit us out if we do not, if we're parasitic. And, um, and that disconnection from nature is uh, creating this parasitic 
relationship um, with our earth and with each other because we don't have a connection to one another. So for me, this mindset um, of, of Ashe connects deeply because my family is from Southwest Louisiana, where we still definitely see the vestiges of um, Ifa in everyday culture, in the way that food is cooked, in the way that dances are danced, music is created, and certainly in the in the voodoo that is still in uh, Louisiana that was transmitted by many people from that are from current day Benin and um, and came in with um, their beliefs and were able to keep them because they were not um, under British rule in which. Uh, the British uh, did an excellent job of colonizing out um, all African culture um, with um, with their enslaved humans. And so when I started diving into my own ancestry I, I, and, and kind of un-decolonizing um, what, um, or understanding at least what was uh, a colonized mindset, I began to consider what else was a colonized mindset. So the whole idea of me being um, Christian and pure and I'm not pure, but Christian and, and acting in a certain way, speaking English, all of these things come out of colonialism. Now, and I'm not saying that they are, are bad things. I have embraced Christianity for myself on my own terms. And I have also um, embraced English as a language that I speak. Um, it is not my favorite language that I speak, but it is a language within which I communicate to a variety of people. But I um, know that there is this pull to want to connect to what was happening before a, a country decided that it was right and everyone else was wrong and that it was it was its destiny to to own and to develop and to acquire and that was what it was supposed to do what's crazy is that this concept of manifest destiny which comes out of the united states is a reaction to um, people trying to become free from british rule you know this in a, in an effort to be quote free, but in order to do that, of course, we know that history has shown that then we had to essentially enslave, kill, rape, and um, rid ourselves of the current inhabitants of this world who, for whom apparently it wasn't their destiny <laughs> to be in these lands. And so as um, people running away from colonialism, Americans then, or North Americans, uh, then colonized everyone else in an, uh, that was living in this land that we're inhabiting in order to then be free for themselves. <laughs> so we can see how this issue um, of colonialism continues generation to generation, essentially wiping out and creating a new narrative of who belongs, what belongs, and what should um, be in a particular place or in a, occupy a particular space. Now, as I mentioned, once I stopped uh, or I started to acknowledge that my thoughts and my ways of being weren't necessarily mine, my curiosity led me to also seeing that for myself and in other in other ways. What did I believe about myself? in terms of what I believe is beautiful and do I, do I get to be that what I believe is correct and accurate, how I should be, how I should move about the world, how I should interact with others, what my political affiliation should be, how I should participate in government, all those things. I started to think about what in that is actually my idea what in that comes from me versus coming from a system that has historically and continues to uh, oppress people like me? What 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 is that? How am I participating in that by 
perpetuating it in my own ways of speaking and my own ways of being and, and in the mantra that I create by speaking those same things into existence, which then become my reality. As an educator, it's really easy to get uh, caught up in this because we're oftentimes teaching from systems that currently exist. And those systems are oftentimes based on a colonizer's narrative or the winner's narrative, if you will. Whoever got to be the biggest in that moment, this becomes the narrative. This is why people turn to uh, Rome to discuss empires and power and all of that instead of turning to Carthage because Rome won and Carthage lost. But in reality, Carthage was an incredibly vibrant and an amazing empire that only lost to Rome with, with, you know, one battle that surely could have gone the other way um, if, if things would have just been a little different. And then we would have had this Afrocentric, this Africanized um, way of being if, if Rome would have lost that particular war. And that way of being would have been more stewardship affiliated in terms of the way that we see the world, the way that we occupy space, the way that we um, participate with nature, because that's how Carthage, uh, Carthaginians were. But I digress. Um, so coming back to how that, how that um, related to me by getting really curious about that. I started to think about how are ways in which I try to colonize other people's thoughts and behaviors and ways of being, you know, how am I part, how am I, um, promulgating this, this issue? And, um, and thinking about that, I had to think about, um, myself as grammarian, myself as educator, myself as just a person with a large group of friends or, uh, and being essentially a, a hub um, for people. And so the way that I started looking at others and speaking to others became more compassionate. The way that I started um, looking at myself became more compassionate. Um, people always refer to me as a grammar Nazi, but the funny thing is, is I really, for me, I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter to me um, today what your, what your grammar is. I'm not your grammar teacher. Um, so if, if your grammar is reflective of your lack of access to, um, to a system that would have you speak in a particular way, who am I to sit there and demonize you for your lack of access? That's just, that's not who I am. And, you know, if I'm teaching you grammar, okay, but if I'm not, then that's, that's not my role. And I believe in, in staying in my lane. So I started to think about um, also um, this concept as it relates to yoga, which is huge because yoga is the conduit through which many people are delving into the questions of who am I and what am I becoming? Now, some folks are just using that within a, an exercise or physical practice, but others are actually using yoga, the concept of yoga to ask bigger questions. Who am I and what am I becoming? And what am I doing here when I turn up on the mat or when I turn up at meditation? What am I doing to step into the fullness of those answers? And this speaks to dharana, this uh, concept of yoga that is um, focused concentration, which is sometimes what we confuse with, which is, is meditation. But we're giving an opportunity to just concentrate and to be and to step into the work of asking these big questions and being open to the answers without cherry picking um, what answers we like versus what answers we don't like in that. We also then um, have an opportunity to create a vision, but how are we supposed to create that vision if we're not actually taking the time to step into focused concentration? But when we do, we can then create a vision and we can do that by spending some time with self. And for me, that means spending time in 
meditation, spending time in, in yin yoga and restorative yoga, really deepening my Shavasana practice to allow for that time for focused concentration. And of course, of course, using the practice of yoga nidra. Through this, we're able to slough off definitions that have been imposed on ourselves. I have been able to slough off definitions of what beauty looks like, what that have been imposed on me or spaces where I'm allowed to be things that I am allowed to teach or what I should do, what I shouldn't do. Um, you know, because I'm a full figure woman, full figured woman, oftentimes people will make the assumption of me being, you know, very maternal. And it's funny because someone actually mentioned this one time that Tamika has this very maternal quality to her. And someone actually contradicted that person um, when it was stated and said, actually, I find that Tamika has this um, quality to her of empowering people and asking for you to step into the highest version of yourself and holding you to that, which is a very powerful way of being. I don't see it as maternal at all. And maybe it's because many people did not have those maternal experiences. And it is, I don't think it's maternal. I think it is, uh, I think it is a big ask for people to step into their own sense of power and to create those definitions of their own. And I do not see that as a part of a maternal nature. I see that as a part of being powerful. And so we, for me, um, sloughing off these definitions became a lot easier as I began to consider what was my um, ancestral inheritance? Because see, when you start asking these big questions, bigger questions come up. So I'm like, well, wait a minute. What, what is my, why am I here right now in this moment? And what does this, what does this mean for me? What would my ancestors have me be in this moment? And I had to think beyond the colonial context of that. You know, I had to think beyond my mother. I had to think beyond my grandparents and, and all of that. You know, they're, they're very traumatized experiences of, of walking this earth as enslaved or, or, or doing what was necessary to uh, survive. I don't want to see my situation as just a an act of survival what about what preceded that? And we are, we are, we start those stories of ancestry oftentimes at colonialism, which would mean that I get to start my story at slavery and I refuse to start my ancestral story at slavery. My ancestral story starts with the first people who inhabited this earth and the kings and queens who have walked this earth, who were the wealthiest people who uh, who have lived on this earth that is the ancestry from which i come and beginning the story at this traumatized context of enslaved africans um is is an insane uh beginning of the story when that's not the beginning of the story and so for me my ancestral inheritance is being empowered, it's being powerful, it's being embodied, and also helping then knowing that, um, helping others step into what it means for them. And we are oftentimes doing this in yoga, and we are oftentimes not doing it in yoga. And so I come back to the original story of this person or this meme. And then one comment that sat with me so deeply, I was so disturbed by it. And I realized why seconds after a person who actually is a teacher trainer here in Houston by happenstance commented on the same post. And I, cause I, I mentioned, you know, that the ancient yogis, the ancient masters would uh, laugh at this, um, westernized perspective of us trying to say who gets to teach what based on a registry company, Yoga Alliance, um, that is full of um, people who do not look like the people who 
from whom the origins of yoga have stemmed. So, um, and this person commented, who are the ancients anyway? Krishnamacharya just died in 89. And I was taken aback because this person has purportedly trained hundreds of teachers um, through 200 and 300 hour programs here within the Houston area. And even he began his context of what yoga was with with colonialized yoga, with colonized yoga, India under British rule. So even he started with um, this, <laughs> with with someone who was not the be- the beginning of yoga. He began with Krishnamacharya, and I just thought to myself: so if you are not a yogi and you're listening to this, um, just to let you know, according to I am I am going to tell you what you can find yourself on line about Krishna Macharya. I am not in any way giving you this information as an expert on Krishna Macharya. If you were to Google Krishna Macharya, this is what you're going to find. Essentially, he's an Indian yoga teacher and Ayurvedic healer and scholar. He is referred to as the father of modern yoga. I'm going to pause right here for a moment to say that if there is a title of the father of modern yoga, then that means that there is an ancient yoga. So we're clear. I'll continue. Then Krishnamacharya is um, widely regarded as one of the most influential teachers of the 20th century. Um, He was influenced uh, by earlier pioneers of the physical nature of yoga. He is, he um, directly contributed to the revival of Hatha yoga. Pause. If there is a revival, then that means that there was something to revive, which means that something existed before him. Okay. And then lastly, he is widely considered the architect of vinyasa yoga. Now, this very influential yoga teacher trainer who's trained hundreds of people within the Houston community and probably beyond, because he's also a traveling yogini, began his context of what yoga was with Krishnamacharya, who is a person who came out of colonial India under British rule, where people were um, essentially trying to uh, continue a, a culture, thrive within a culture, while under operating within an, an oppressive system, which is colonialism. And he, this person who is sending people out into the world to train yoga teachers um, is beginning his context here. This is the, the equivalent of beginning your context of American blackness with Jamestown. It's not okay. So it's not what is the context of blackness. It just is, it, it is not. It, it is crazy to me that someone who is supposedly a leader within the yoga community would do this, but it's also not crazy to me because he is a privileged white man continuing the tradition of yoga um, according to his own understanding of it. So um, for me, um, I, of course, being curious, decided to just Google what what would come up. If I Googled yoga, what, what is it? What comes up? And what comes up is yoga is a group of physical, mental, and spiritual practices or disciplines that originated in ancient India. It is one of six Astika schools of Hindu philosophical traditions. Astika means orthodox. 
If you continue to look at what yoga is, you'll see that its origins go back to 3000 uh, before the common era. And, um, and from here on, this is probably if you have ever studied yoga, I hope you would know this, that then um, within the fifth and sixth centuries before the common area, people started studying it more. There are different um, areas of study that come out um, that don't, that I'm not going to go into right now. Um, the Upanishads start to give context to these studies um, and people start to study the Upanishads. Then after that, in the second century before the common era, um, we arrive at the Yoga Sutras of Pantajali, who, um, who, who this, these Yoga Sutras become ending up like the, the, the Bible, if you will, or the, I mean, my, a friend of mine always uses the word, the canon of yoga. They, they kind of form a sort of canon around yoga. And then fast forward to the 19th century, by the way, this if you're counting, that's 21 centuries later, um, Swami Vivekananda brings yoga or introduces yoga to the West. Okay, this is way before Krishnamacharya brings anything. So, again, by starting the conversation with one person who chose to bring um, who chose to develop this, this, um, system within the, the West, then now everything has to be centered on the Western context of it, because that's where we're practicing. This is crazy. There is something to be said for living and, and being in a post-colonial era and not having to have everything defined by the things that we just, that, that no longer, um, have to be the norms that no longer have to be the narrative and and the story constantly being told from this Europeanized context and narrative and perspective. Life didn't even originate in Europe. Why are we trying to keep everything within that context? Um, Europe is not the superpower anymore. Um, it is a share, it's a part of a shared set of countries that, um, are still systemically oppressing people and becoming powerful, um, and maintaining power by doing that. And of course the United States does an excellent job of this by creating, um, oppressive situations in Latin America and then creating problems of, um, of getting people to be able to move out of those situations because in order to be on top of something, you have to be standing on something else. Um, so until we actually acknowledge uh, that we are still operating uh, with this colonial hangover and there are still ways in which we are um, continuing to oppress people either by deed or by by the things that we say, um, it's really hard to actually ask people to step into healing. And so we have these arguments that are in yoga that are about hands-on assist and what is yoga and our 200-hour teachers being trained properly to go out and lead people. Um, should we ohm? Should we not ohm? Do we chant? Do we teach in Sanskrit? Do we teach in English? All of that is ridiculous. All of those conversations are distractions from the real issue of people trying to practice something that is not inherently theirs. And I would say that nothing is inherently anyone's, but a practice that isn't theirs and trying to do their best to do it within their understanding, which is fine. I believe that we all should do that. But then to go colonize other people's thoughts, mindsets, and ways of being by saying that that is the way. That's the only way. And in the, the previous um, uh, episode, I said, and I'll repeat, you know, a lot of the things that we call woo-woo today are actually real 
concepts that come out of the cultures that have been colonized. And I will go further to say that I believe that colonized yoga is the belief that yoga asana is yoga. Because if we are sitting there and we're only looking at yoga asana, which only came out of modern context of yoga, um, or the movement, the postures of yoga, then we are not acknowledging everything that happened before it. And we are occupying yoga with the concept that movement is it. By calling yoga a physical exercise that gives you a good sweat, that does all of these things, we are continuing to oppress other people with what yoga is for them and what yoga could be. And we're continuing to um, create distance between the historic concept of yoga and what it is today. And while this podcast speaks to yoga and it speaks to history and, 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 um, and how we can apply something ancient to something modern, this is indicative of the way that we move about the world. If we will do it, with something like yoga, then we will also do it with something like beauty or something like, um, who gets to be in power and who doesn't get to deserve that position. We'll do it with anything. And we will not consider the people who are on the margins or the people who do not get to participate because Othering then takes over, and othering is so powerful that it will then it it invites other people to other with us. And as long as we are creating an othered mindset, then there is someone outside of that. There is someone to be othered. And I just do not believe that that is the role or the place of us in a post-enlightenment 21st century context. When we have so many options and opportunities to connect, to be connected, to learn different languages, to travel, to experience different cultures and people, to be around people who are not like us, to participate in the culture and the rituals of other people. Why would we choose fragmentation? Why would we choose separation? Why would we choose enclosed borders and enclosed walls and separating ourselves from one another? I do not believe that this is how we will be able to persist. I think that we will have to come out of our context, our narratives, our walls, our borders in order to survive within the next century. Um, and we have an opportunity to start that right now by countering these, um, these concepts that oppress other ways of thinking. Now, someone asked me at another time, well, does that mean that you care what um, Donald Trump says? And I said, yes, I do. Do I agree with Donald, what Donald Trump says? Hell no. Do I agree with who he is, how he is, his, the way that he lives his life, the way that he has completely participated in the decimation of the, of, of the tiny little thread that was holding, um, people together in this country? Do I appreciate that? Hell no. Am I strongly anti-Trump? Hell yes. Do I, do I not like him? Absolutely. But will I stop listening? Will I stop paying attention? Will I stop? Um, will I say you're not worth, um, you're not worth your words? No, because that is then me participating in the same crap. That is the problem. So for, for me, when we are working together, when we are compassionate, we are, we are elevating and when we're not, we're not. And in order to do that, we have to decolonize our mindset by acknowledging that this is the, what is truth and what is not truth. Last thing I will mention is this connects deeply to the sutra study that my students have been studying this week, which is Yoga Sutra 1.7. And in this Yoga Sutra, essentially, it says that 
the way that correct knowledge is formed is in three ways. Through what we directly observe, what we indirectly observe, and what and through scriptures. So essentially what this means is we create facts by what we see, by what we intuit, and by what we read. And that is the way that we are creating facts. So if we're reading high vibration, elevated things, things that get us out of our comfort zones, things that expand us, we're going to have an expanded nature. We're going to have an expanded awareness. We're going to continue educating ourselves in ways that we don't currently know we're undereducated, misinformed, or ignorant. And so we're going to increase correct knowledge or we're going to expand facts. Um, and we, and what we observe when we see things that don't correlate with what we read, then we can then call those things into question because what we read and what we're seeing aren't uh, aligned. And then we can say, Hmm, you know, I don't know if that's true. And then by what we intuit, what we, what we perceive, the things that, that come out of our inner core, those things also then help to inform, um, the creation of facts, because we can say, you know what, I do not believe in my core that what I just read was right. I'm going to go investigate more. Or I do not believe in my core that what I just saw means that that person is this. So I'm going to ask better questions or I'm going to find out more. All three of those things need to be happening and operating in order for us to form correct knowledge. And if we're doing more on one end or the other, then we have far more likelihood of creating incorrect knowledge because we are not utilizing that balance of sight, interpretation, and reading to form correct knowledge. So correlating this ancient knowledge, which it is ancient, it comes from before the current era out of the Yoga Sutras. If we utilize this ancient knowledge and we say, okay, how do I correlate that to today? Then we can sit there and know that what we are reading, seeing, and interpreting in, in, within ourselves, if it is not in alignment, then it is wrong. And we can begin to question where that information came from. We can begin to question what wasn't said. If this is what is said and we have an inkling that it is not correct, what wasn't said and who didn't get invited to the table to speak. So consider going forward that those three things are at play every single time we start questioning how we behave. Is this something that comes out of current culture or is this something that is being informed by my ancestors, my ancestry before someone chose to dominate those cultures with their points of view, their perspective on what was right and what was wrong? Just consider it. And then we can begin to um, elevate together. We can begin to be more compassionate together because we know once we strip off the power that is in, and the hubris that is involved with in colonizing other people's thoughts, then what is left is compassion, connectedness, and truth. Today you'll prepare for meditation by coming to a comfortable seat. In this meditation, I will guide you to time and space being held for you, and then create an opportunity for you to sit with yourself, to allow for any work that you are doing for yourself to come into your own consciousness and for you to have space to sit in contemplation.
If there are any questions or intentions that you have for your practice, feel free to offer that or ask that now. And settle into your seat. Notice the connection between your seat and yourself and your body. And take a nice long inhalation, lengthening your spine. And a luxurious exhalation, allow for your shoulders to glide down your back. Take another full inhale, experience the lift of your spine. Exhale and settle into your root. Allow for your breaths to nestle themselves right in between your ribs and your lungs, filling for an expansion of your lungs on your inhalation. and enjoying a relaxed position as your exhalation begins and ends. Take a full breath in, feel for an expansion of your lungs and your side ribs. And exhale, allow for your ribs to settle back into their natural position. Enjoy a nice inhalation, perhaps even bringing the inhalation down lower in your body. And as you exhale, allow for your body to come back to rest. Inhale, draw your breath now even lower in the body. Feel for an expansion in your low belly. And exhale, low belly comes back to its natural position. Inhale, your low belly expands like a balloon. And exhale, find deep rest in your body. Take a full breath in. Feel for your pelvic floor and press it down on your inhale. Exhale, allow for your pelvic floor to come back to its natural state. Inhale, press your pelvic floor down, fill your belly like a balloon. Exhale, your belly comes back to rest. On this inhale, Notice a sensation or create a sensation of feeling full all the way from your chest to your pelvic floor. And on your exhale, empty. Inhale, fill up your whole body with breath all the way from your chest to your pelvic floor. And exhale, empty out completely. On this next exhale, send it up now, breath awareness to the crown of your head. Notice your breath filling in the nooks and crannies behind your eyes and your ears, the back of your throat, and on your exhale, fill your exhale, leave your nostrils. Take a full breath, notice the temperature of your inhale. And as you exhale, allow for breath to release naturally. Now inhale, sending breath awareness to the crown of your head. And exhale, send it out of your mouth. On your inhales, fill your inhale, enter through your nostrils, go all the way to the crown of your head, then down your spine to your pelvic floor. Exhale, let it out of your mouth. Inhale again, into your nostrils, crown of your head, around to the back of your body, pelvic floor. Exhale, let it come out, 
across your belly, up your chest, and out of your mouth. And allow for your body to settle back into its natural state and find a natural rhythm to your breath now. Bring breath awareness now back to your chest. Sense your heart. If you'd like, you can bring one or both hands to your heart and feel for your beating heart. Perhaps even hear your heart beating. And ask yourself, what is your heart's truest intention? What does your heart deeply desire? If you began this meditation with an intention or a question in your own mind, you can ask that question instead and ask your heart and listen. Notice if your heart responds in images or messaging not necessarily in complete sentences or words, but just showing you the answer from your heart. Now turn your heart's answer into a statement within the present tense, creating your heart's answer as truth. As we move on in the meditation and my words begin to fade away and your concentration begins, concentrate on the words of your heart or just allow for that intention to just settle into your body and to just be present.
Notice how you feel. Acknowledge yourself as observer, having co-created this experience and sat in your experience without judgment. Bring back any thoughts that you may have temporarily suspended. Bring them back into your mind's eye, any sounds outside of yourself, perhaps even outside of your room. Bring awareness back to your breath. Notice the rise and fall of your chest. Notice the location of your breath. And take a deeper breath in. Exhale out through your mouth. And do that again, take an even deeper breath in. And a nice gentle sigh out. Invite gentle movements now into your body. Movements into your neck and shoulders, your legs. And on your ready, blink your eyes open and see with a new perspective. And it's always my recommendation after meditation to write down any thoughts or visions that you had so that you can come back to them when you need them or when they have a greater context in your life. Things that we believe are unimportant right now can be important later when the context and for which they are necessary reveal themselves. I invite you to come back to this meditation when you want to sit in contemplation again. It is always my goal to leave you better than I found you. I hope that happened for you today. Namaste. You've been listening to Think, Flow, Grow. This is Tamika with Asha Yoga. I'd love to hear your feedback and would love to hear any topics that you'd like for me to address. Feel free to email me at tamika at ashayoga.com. Also, you can go to that website to find out upcoming workshops, retreats, and events in your area.